Hey everybody, thank you for joining me on AM Live. Hope your weekend is going well. Um, it's Sunday evening where I am, and I hope uh, wherever you are, you've had a good day and getting ready for a new week. Um, I have a lot to discuss, but I'll try not to take up too long in my rant because I want to have as much time for calls as possible. A few topics I want to get into. Um, first is Ukraine. The widespread picture is very clear now that Russia is winning. Ukraine, I think we can all agree, put up a, a much stronger resistance than many people expected, uh, including myself. But eventually, as I think has always been obvious, and I've tried to warn, Russia, just by virtue of its proximity to Ukraine and its sheer military size, will have military dominance. And that's one of the reasons why I've long argued that this proxy war was such a, uh, on top of being so destructive and immoral, but just so foolish that really all it meant was amounting to sentencing more Ukrainians to die. Um, but even though it's now being acknowledged more and more that Russia is, is essentially winning, still inside Washington, the attitude seems to be just doubling down for more escalation. And the um, one example of this came through from a long piece in the Washington Post the other day about how in Washington, the Biden administration is basically preparing for a long war, even in the face of so much uh, loss by Ukraine, which is staggering. So this is what the Washington Post says, and it's, it's basing this on conversations with administration officials. It says, officials have described the stakes of ensuring Russia cannot swallow up Ukraine, an outcome officials believe could embolden Putin to invade other neighbors or even strike out at NATO members, as so high that the administration is willing to countenance even a global recession and mounting hunger. So again, the stakes of ensuring Russia cannot swallow up Ukraine in the eyes of Biden administration officials are so high that, quote, the administration is willing to countenance even a global recession and mounting hunger. So think about what that statement means. That means that people in Washington are aware that their proxy war, which they're losing, where hundreds of Ukrainian soldiers are dying by the day. Um, they're aware of all this, and they're also aware that it's also going to cause a global recession and mounting hunger. And yet, the stakes of letting Russia win are so high that they're willing to tolerate all of that. So they're not only willing to sacrifice Ukrainian lives, but they're essentially willing to sacrifice the global economy as well as hunger, mounting what the Washington Post calls mounting hunger. hunger, And that's a remarkably sociopathic, sociopathic statement, I think. But I think it captures the attitude of people in Washington that the goal of using Ukraine for a proxy war against Russia supersedes everything else. It supersedes a global recession. It supersedes mounting hunger. And it even supersedes avoiding a nuclear holocaust, because that's ultimately what this conflict could lead to. I don't think it will. If I was making bets, I don't think we're going to get there. But this, this is—it's never been risked at this level. And you know, compounding those risks is the fact that you still have the U.S. and Russia also on opposing sides in Syria, where just this week the, the Wall Street Journal reported that the um, the headline is this: Russian escalations in Syria risk direct conflict with U.S. military officials. Warrant, and they're referring to a series of. Uh, clashes and confrontations recently between Russia and U.S.-backed forces 
inside Syria, including uh, one where Russia attacked a base that is used by the U.S. in the southern part of Syria. That's so we have not one but two battle zones where the world's top nuclear powers are on opposite sides. And, and the irony of one being in Ukraine and one being in Syria is that in Ukraine, we're supposed to be back in Ukraine because we are in defense of the sovereignty of states and another country can't take another country's territory by force, right? That's the rationale we're given when we're told why we have to you know, funnel billions of dollars more after Ukraine. Well, look what the U.S. is doing in Syria. The U.S. has occupied one third of Syria. It happens to be its most valuable territory uh, full of Syria's wheat and oil. And the reason we're there is was put best by Donald Trump. We said we're there to take the oil. So as we're sermonizing about how important sovereignty and respect for borders is in Ukraine, we're simultaneously occupying one third of Syria uh, and also like in Ukraine, uh, putting ourselves at serious risk of a confrontation with Russia. But of course, that contradiction, that irony is never noted by our Western media. So as bad as things are going for the U.S. side in Ukraine, there's no signs to me of any kind of slowdown, any kind of dip, any kind of diplomatic off ramp, even though even though to me, the solutions have always been there. And they start with recognizing that the West can't use Ukraine as a uh, outpost against Russia, as a NATO outpost. And that would require Ukraine accepting neutrality. And at times, it's appeared that Zelensky has even uh, accepted this. For example, in late March, he put out this 10-point plan for peace with Russia, and that included neutrality. But that was immediately sabotaged when Boris Johnson made his first visit to Kiev in early April. And we know from Ukrainian media that that's when Boris Johnson told Zelensky not to negotiate with Putin. So at every step, the West has been undermining the prospects for peace in Ukraine. It's been even more hawkish than the Ukrainian government. And the result is now an endless war where more Ukrainians are used for cannon fodder. And this is where the rest of us come in because, you know, for a while, people who are not inside Ukraine or the immediate vicinity could look at it and say, oh, well, you know, it's horrible, but it's a far off conflict. Well, now this is consciously causing a global recession and mounting hunger around the world, as was predicted. And the Biden administration is telling us they're willing to countenance that. They're, they're okay with that. They're willing to sacrifice not just Ukrainians, not just Russians, but the rest of the world for the proxy war goals. And so that's a very ominous development. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about was this thing that just happened where I woke up today and I had a bunch of messages <laughs> asking me if I'd seen The Guardian today. Uh, because The Guardian today named me uh, with a, uh, you know, a new distinction that I have, I have not... Um, Garner before, The Guardian called me, quote, the most prolific spreader of disinformation, unquote, on Syria. And the basis for this was a study by something called the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, and uh, which put out this long paper purporting to look at people who spread disinformation and conspiracy theories about Syria. And they named me as the prolific <laughs> spreader of that disinformation. Now, a few things were missing from this article. The author, Mark Townsend, failed to contact me and ask me for my response to being called a prolific spreader of disinformation on Syria. Both The Guardian and this study fails to identify a single piece of disinformation that I've spread. Uh, the, study, the study cites what I've done, uh, which is basically right about the OPCW cover-up scandal, where the OPCW's own inspectors went to Syria to investigate an alleged chemical attack in Douma, 
in April 2018. They wrote up a report saying that there was no evidence of a chemical attack, but that report was censored. And in its place, the OPCW put out in public reports that blatantly contradicted what its own inspectors had found and what the original report had stated. And so I've gotten a series of leaks from the OPCW about this scandal, and I've reported on it. And the study calls this disinformation, but doesn't provide a single example of what actually I've said that's false, because they can't. This is based on internal documents from, uh, and this is based on an investigation that was involved some of the OPCW's top scientists, and they were the ones who were combating disinformation inside their own organization, which was the, the disinformation that was being spread to silence and bury the actual findings of the investigation in Duma. And so that's what I've reported on. The Guardian also didn't disclose that this uh, this group that put out the study, it's called the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, they didn't tell their audience that while they're accusing me of you know pushing state-backed disinformation because they try to tie me to Russia, they didn't, they didn't tell their audience that this study that they're basing this on is funded, uh, or, or the institute that put out the study, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, is funded by the U.S., the U.K., Germany, and a series of other NATO states. You can go, there's a huge long list. And the U.S. takes up uh, multiple entries in the Institute for, for, Institute for Strategic Dialogue's group of government partners. There's the State Department. There's the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, there is also um, the International Republican Institute, the National Democratic Institute, the U.S. Institute for Peace. All of these are U.S. government funded. And uh, there's many other government partners that are on this list. The study is also funded by something called Luminate. And Luminate happens to be a think tank or an organization that is funded by Pierre Omidyar, who is a billionaire oligarch. He funds The Intercept. And I think his funding for stuff like this helps explain why The Intercept has been so terrible and it's reporting on the Syria dirty war and how why it's whitewashed the OPCW cover-up scandal to the point where it's refused to actually acknowledge the OPCW whistleblower's existence, but that's a whole other different story. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and so, yeah. And so the irony, you know, I'm going to respond to this article more, more in, in writing uh, this week, but there's a lot of ironies here. They're accusing me of disinformation while failing to substantiate a single example of me spreading disinformation. They're saying I'm a part of a network of conspiracy theorists spreading disinformation, and they also try to tie us to Russia. The initial, the initial headline of this article said that uh, the, something like Russia-backed network uh, exposed or, or revealed or something like that. Yeah, uh, Russia-backed network of Syria conspiracy theorists identified. They, they quickly edited that and took out Russia back because I think they realized that that was too libelous. There's no, they can't find any, any evidence that I'm backed by Russia because there is none. That's a uh, invention. So anyway, so, but the irony is saying that I'm spreading disinformation. I'm part of a network. It's very funny because here's a study spreading disinformation about factual reporting and about the OPCW scandal while relying entirely on its own network of sources that are all funded by the same people, the U.S. government. So this report and the Guardian quotes, quotes the White Helmets. It quotes the State Department. Uh, it quotes uh, the Syria campaign. It quotes the Institute for, for Strategic Dialogue. And all these entities share some similar characteristics that they're all funded by the same Western governments. That's the real network here of conspiracy theorists because their conspiracy theory is the suggestion that somehow I'm backed by Russia which is a fabrication. 
Uh, and the reason they're advancing that conspiracy theory is because they can't actually challenge me on the facts that I've reported on. So hence this smear effort. And so, look, this is nothing new. This follows. This comes just, you know, last week on the show, we talked about Mason Gate. That's the revelation that this British journalist named Paul Mason has been trying to collude with members of the uh, UK national security state to basically deplatform the gray zone, the outlet that I work for, to get us defunded, to harass us, to tie us up in, in court, to do anything but address the actual substance, our reporting, because they can't. So uh, instead, they wanted to silence it. And this is a, basically a part of that. This is an effort to taint the reporting we do by calling us names, by um, citing these reports that look like they have some serious research behind them, but are really just propaganda put out by people who have actually been involved in the Syria dirty war um, and the same network. And so there's a lot, there's a lot of irony here. And it's just, you know, this is just the new reality that, that, that we have to deal with. This stuff will continue to happen by people who can't simply respond to us on the merits. You know, the intellectually serious thing to do when you don't agree with someone or you think they're wrong is to point out why they're wrong and document it. You know, write an article showing why you think I've gotten the OPCW scandal wrong or why I've gotten Syria wrong. But they can't do that. So this is their only playbook. All right. I've said that enough. So I'm going to stop talking about how they can't refute us on the facts. But, you know, the most egregious case of this right now um, is, of course, the, the torture and persecution of Julian Assange. And just this week, we got the news that the UK Home Secretary has approved the, the extradition of Assange to the U.S., and this, above everything else, is the most important uh, press freedom story in the world. It's about even so much more than press freedom, uh, which is scary to think because this story alone, putting aside the absolute inhumanity that Julian Assange has been subjected to himself, the torture, being locked up in prison for three years, the conditions that he's in, before that having to live in the Ecuadorian embassy. I mean, there's... In fact, there's a whole new book about it by Niels Meltzer, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, that I really recommend. And but even beyond the press freedom issue, with the the press freedom issue, which again we're talking about a case that will end a free media as we know it if they're allowed to extradite and prosecute Assange simply for publishing factual information that exposed war crimes and corruption and destabilization, the very kinds of things that we tried to expose at the Gray Zone. But really, this is a fight for humanity because this is the worst of humanity trying to trying to silence someone who has tried to expose their crimes. And if we are going to allow them to do that, then we're basically saying that the world we live in will tolerate someone who has sacrificed their life, Julian Assange, sacrificed their freedom to help humanity and to expose inhumanity. If we allow that to happen, um, I just... <laughs> to me, it's a turning point for the future if we allow this to prevail. So we can't allow it to prevail. And that, above everything else, is the most important story to me right now when it comes to um, press freedom and um, fighting to save some modicum of democracy in what's called the Western world. Because if Julian Assange is allowed to be caged for life, then we've lost it. We really have lost it on top of what we've already lost so far. All right. That's enough of a rant. Thanks for bearing with me. I will take some calls now. And John, you're up. And John, if you're there, there is a microphone button in the bottom right that you press to unmute yourself. And if not, I will go on to the next caller. And that is No War Chris. Can you hear me, Aaron? I don't have yes. great service where I'm at. Yeah. Cool. I'll just, I need to stop and pull over for a sec so I don't lose you. Um, 
So I just, what do you think is going to happen with the signs? I mean, it looks like he's going to get extradited. Does, is the U.S. actually going to try him? And would that trial be public? I mean, there's a lot of details that would have to be, you know, exposed that are, you know, the U.S. government doesn't want to disclose, right, to, to try him. I mean, to, to prove what they want to prove against Julian would, to be, would be to disclose some, some secrets about the U.S. government that I don't think they want out, right? So how do you see this going? I mean, like, just assuming at this point that he does get extradited and, and moved to the U.S., in the next few months. What? Well, like, yeah. Now he appeals, right? So he appeals this ruling. And I think the plan is just to keep him tied up in prison for as long as possible. And maybe they want him to die in there. I mean, I certainly Mike Pompeo, people like that want him to die in there. Um, so I think that's probably part of their thinking that maybe he just dies in there and that solves their problem. But in the meantime, I think it's just uh, keep him up, keep him locked up for as long as possible. He'll exhaust the appeals process. First, he'll go to the highest British court. And then if that fails, then he'll go to the European Commission of Human Rights. And that will take a while. So, you know, they they love it because as long as he's, it's even better for, I think, people inside the U.S. government from their point of view, if he's just tied up in legal limbo than if he's in the U.S. Because if he's in the U.S. and they have to deal with him and they have to, as you say, deal with the contents of what he exposed more directly. But now they're sort of farming it out to their British lapdog who can do all the work for them. So right now, I think from their point of view, they're, they're happy with, with the, with the status quo. Yeah, that seems right. It's just, I'm just so curious about how that trial would go. I mean, would they, would they, would they make it a public trial or would they make it private and not publicly disclose it? And I mean, can they do that? I just don't, I don't fully understand what the legal aspects of that are, but. It's, it's certainly interesting. And I think you're right that they do have them kind of where they want them. Um, just that's in, a, that's a good question. Stuff. Yeah, that's a good question. They, they might invoke some kind of like, uh, you know, uh, national security state uh, uh, provision that allows them to keep certain parts classified. I don't know. I mean, with Bradley Manning, her uh, with Chelsea Manning, sorry, with, with Chelsea Manning, her court martial was uh, – it was public. People were there at the proceedings. So I don't know how much they can keep secret. Certainly they can bar cameras and all that stuff. But um, I don't know if they can really, in, on U.S. Soil do, soil, do something that secret. But hopefully we will not find out. Hopefully we'll free him before that ever happens. Well, keep up the good work, Aaron. You're uh, getting all these attacks because... You're doing good work. And, hey, did that video that YouTube censored and then uncensored and then censored again, is it up yet? I oh, yeah. Uh, I forgot about, Yeah, I forgot about that. So Max Blumenthal and I did a long video. It was like two and a half hours or <coughs> something like that. It was a long time. Just responding to the Paul Mason leaks. And the video got censored for harassment and bullying. Which, again, it's like everything we are – it's like we're constantly dealing with projection. So – we uncover these emails, or like we get leaked these emails showing that Paul Mason is plotting a harassment and bullying campaign against us, right? We're not plotting to harass and bully Paul Mason. We're, you know, I find him to be a comical character. I'm, I'm laughing at him when he's calling for my censorship and refusing to come on my show to defend his views. I think that's funny, but I'm not calling for him to be deplatformed and to, 
than for him to be harassed. He's meanwhile plotting how he's holding a meeting. That's what these leaks show. He's trying to hold a meeting with members of the national security state in Britain to come up with ways to investigate the gray zone and deplatform, like what he calls relentless deplatforming. That's what he's calling for. Okay. So we make a video responding to that. Okay. Responding to his harassment and bullying uh, and his calls for censoring us and we get censored. So it's kind of like he actually wins by even getting us to discuss his own harassment and bullying. He gets to at least have us censored. So anyway, uh, no, the video has not been restored on YouTube. We did release one segment of it, which is where we talk about Bellingcat, uh, because Bellingcat um, is mentioned in those Paul Mason emails. It's actually my favorite part of them, where he says that Bellingcat is Intel service by proxy, and that uh, Bellingcat gets a reliable stream of Intel from Western intelligence agencies, which is exactly what the gray zone has been saying publicly. So it's great to see Paul Mason agree with us in private. And it's all the more funny because here he is trying to attack us for what we say in public while privately agreeing with us when it comes to Bellingcat. So, um, but uh, the rest of it on YouTube has not been put up because it was censored, but Max did put it up on his Rockfin channel. So you can find it there. Okay. I was just going to ask that. And the Bellingcat is like that 30 minute clip that came out three, four days ago, right? Yeah, that's right. right? I watched that one. Okay. And, uh, uh, Shit, I had one other thing, but well, that's it, Chris. Thanks a lot for the call. Thank you, Aaron. Hello, Sam. I keep having to congratulate you every week these days. Now, I mean, first you uh, you got the badge of honor with BBC coming after you, and now the Guardian. I mean, you keep this up, Aaron. CNN's going to be at you, and uh, I don't know how much further you can go up the chain. So, congratulations again to pissing off even the Guardian. Yeah, well, look, the, Gu- the Guardian is really, you know, sunk. It, it used to be uh, a long time ago, a legitimate outlet. It was, yeah. I, or, you know. I, but, but then uh, I don't know why they changed on Julian Assange. One minute they're like all for him, then they completely do a one eighty on him back in the day. Well, they worked with him. They used his. They used his disclosures, and then when he became, you know, a public enemy number one of the national security state and also liberals started hating him because of uh, 2016 they turned on him completely now though they've woken up a little bit i think they might realize the implications of the case and, so, and also i think they realize how ridiculous it looks for something calling itself a news outlet to not be denouncing the case against julian assange so now they now they're supporting him in the sense of fighting the extradition but yeah no what's happened to them is crazy and on syria they've been awful and they've frozen out a lot of longtime people like John Pilger, who they've attacked. And, you know, they printed these ridiculous attacks on Noam Chomsky. So, you know, uh, for me, it's an honor to be uh, smeared by them as well, because I don't take anything they do seriously anymore. And I see them, unfortunately, as an extension of the government that they should be exposing. Instead, they're parroting. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I told you last week when they uh, they got caught themselves relying on this one guy. And I, I swear, I, I, I meant to look for his name, but I had an exam this week, so I had that uh, focus. But it was like some guy who was claiming like the Syrian government was after him. The guy's wife was even on HBO with Omar or something. And then his friend had like literally recorded him saying that he had staged, uh, you know, himself getting like stabbed. 
Um, and when it came public, like the guy went off the radar and the guardian, all they did was just put an editor's note saying, well, it's not verified uh, whether or not this was like some Syrian government intelligence operative in Syria. And I was like, seriously, why don't you just completely retract the story? But no, I, I know what you mean. They've, they've gone downhill completely. And of course they can't attack you on your facts because if they did think about what they'd have to admit you have the leaks you even had the the guy who created um the opcw jose bastani saying hey why isn't this information brought to the public but if they bring all that information out to the light in their article then people would read it and be like well i'm sorry what exactly are you criticizing here about this guy because these just seem to be merit-based uh facts so that's why they can't attack you on the facts as to your point about what the Biden administration would do with Ukraine and risking a famine, and of course they'll do this stuff. I mean, dude, as you pointed out in the past, we know for a fact Idlib in Syria has – it's literally a, a hotbed for al-Qaeda. I mean there was even a video circulating of the U.S. going in and attacking another – killing another ISIS leader in Idlib. Weird how this, this is the last rebel bastion – there seems to always be keep being an ISIS leader that these quote rebel groups never seem to notice. But um, look, if they're going to le- leave an entire Al Qaeda pocket in Syria, you can't be surprised that they'll keep pushing for more war in Ukraine. I mean, this is just a given. But uh, look, I know there's a lot of people on the queue, so I'll be quick. I just want to say congrats as always. Keep up the good work, and you know, just keep pissing more and more of them off. Eventually. Eventually, they're just going to have a breaking point of like, look, we can't get this guy. That's it. They're going to just have to throw up their hands in the air. So congrats, man. Thank you, Sam. I appreciate it. Okay. Kathy. Hi. Um, I just, you know, I'm 63. I've been a lefty my whole life, and I've been watching. You know, I mean, the U.S. has told plenty of lies. Um but things seem to be really changed in about uh, 2016, I'd say. Um, you know, you have things like your report on the um, the chemical, supposed chemical attack in Syria, uh, the Skripal affair, all of that. Um, there's absolutely, I mean, all the evidence is out there. Russiagate, you know, the fact that Hillary Clinton paid for this, that she you know, lied about this, and it's like all the information is out there that there should be, you know, some big uh, reckoning with it, but there isn't ever. It just isn't reported in the news. It's bizarre to me. I mean, there's nothing... There, and The whole system is so rotten at this point. You can't go to the courts. You can't... You know, there's no place to appeal to anymore. Because the whole system is just rotten. I, I'm I'm floored by it. I really implored by it. This thing with you, with this, you know, they find out people are attacking independent media and nobody, there's not a word about it anywhere. I'm just, I'm really kind of depressed by it. Anyways, yeah. that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> well, hey, Kathy, I, I totally hear you. And look, look where we are with Julian Assange and how we're in this really pitiful state right now and i agree this is a result of 2016 where even the squad and bernie sanders they can't even bring themselves to oppose the extradition of julian assange only ilhan omar has said something on twitter she tweeted out one sentence saying this is uh unjustified or something like that but that's it 
AOC, right. Bernie Sanders, they can't even bring themselves to uh, speak out against the attack on Julian Assange. And that is a direct result of this intensified propaganda campaign against WikiLeaks since 2016, where Democrats, because they lost to Trump, humiliated themselves, had their legacy rejected by enough swing voters, tried to blame everyone they could. And a big part of that was trying to portray Julian Assange as a villain and paint his disclosures as the product of some sort of like Russian state campaign uh, and not just the uh, DNC emails, but pretty much everything that WikiLeaks does. And that was the message of Mike Pompeo. So, you know, 2016 was not just partisan w- with Democrats you know, villainizing Assange. Mike Pompeo took full advantage of that. And that's and we know now from all the reporting that's been done, that Mike Pompeo took advantage of that by basically uh, ordering an intensified operation against Assange. That, as we know from the leaks that have come out, including plotting to kill him, plotting to kidnap him, plotting to poison him, spying on his family. Um, and so really, this assault on WikiLeaks has been bipartisan completely. And liberals have been enlisted in it by this relentless propaganda campaign that paints Julian Assange as this, you know, uh, crypto right winger who works with Russia, even though there's no evidence to support any of that. And, uh, um, well, you look at the difference between Assange and, um, uh, God, I'm having a mental block, the Pentagon Papers, uh, what's his name? Ellsberg, Ellsberg. Ellsberg, Daniel Ellsberg. I mean, you know, they got the Nixon administration got caught breaking into a psychiatrist's office and so forth. And the charges were dropped, you know, the CIA gets caught plotting to kill Assange and kidnap him and all this other stuff. And it just, nobody, nothing is done about it. There's no, I mean, you had investigations into this stuff in the past. I mean, I'm not saying they were, you know, completely thorough or, you know, above board all the time, but there was some response to it. Now it's just ignored completely. It's it's unbelievable to me. I'm I don't I don't think there's any hope for us left. There's no place to go. Well, anyway. look, it's it's certainly bleak. I, you know, I never uh, you know, foreclose hope because hope is just subjective to you know how you're feeling in one day and and no matter whether you have hope or not, it doesn't change, I think, what we try to do because, you know, even if the odds are 100% against us, we still have to try our best because the alternative is just doing nothing and letting the bad guys win. But, yeah, I, I it's bleak. It is a very, very bleak time, and it comes amidst a awful proxy war that is only going to uh, cause more suffering around the world, not just in Ukraine. Yeah, it's, so it's tough. But this is the time for us to, yeah. you know, those of us who are Okay, Kathy, sorry, you were cutting out, so I had to move on. But thank you for the call. Okay, Olu, you're up. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Oh, I just wanted to know, how come um, I hear reports here about Israel attacking Syria all the time? And I always get confused. How come Syria can't attack Israel? Well, uh, <clears throat> a big part of the problem is Russia. Because Russia, contrary to the popular narrative uh, that, you know, Russia and Syria are totally in lockstep and that Russia basically controls Syria, they're actually greatly at odds over Israel because Russia has its own relationship with Israel and wants to protect it. And essentially, Russia prevents Syria from even fully defending itself 
when Israel attacks it. So using certain anti-aircraft systems, Russia actually prevents Syria from doing that, from what I understand. And uh, and look, as for why Israel can't attack, why Syria can't attack Israel, Israel is a much more powerful military force. It has nuclear weapons. And so, um, you know, it's uh, Syria in that, in that is in a tough position because it's also been totally pulverized by the 10 year dirty war. Whereas Israel is like, you know, this massively U.S. subsidized state, you know, armed to the teeth right on Syria's borders. And Syria has been ravaged by 10 years of war. So I don't think militarily it's in any position to defend itself from, from Israel right now by striking back. Unfortunately, that's that's just the way it is when it, from Syria's perspective. Um, it's Hezbollah that could uh, attack Israel. Hezbollah has the capacity to, you know, reach inside Israel. But if Hezbollah does that, then they invite an Israeli attack on Lebanon. So it's a, uh, look, the, the, the best deterrent to an Israeli attack on Syria would be if international law w- was respected. And if people around the world spoke out and if the U.S. government told Israel not to do it because, you know, the U.S. Uh, has such sway over Israel, you know, because it, it, Israel, uh, I think, could not do what it does without U.S. support militarily and diplomatic. But the world is silent. You know, so, for example, so when Israel bombs Syria, it bombs uh, the port of Latakia recently. It bombs uh, Damascus. It bombs the Damascus airport most recently, destroying part of a terminal and leaving some runways inoperable. The world shrugs. No one cares. No one cares. So do you think think the government can afford them? Do I think the government in, in Syria will fall? Yeah. No, I don't. I don't. I went to Syria a year ago and um, I didn't go everywhere. But from what I saw, the government has a huge base of popular support. In Damascus, there were massive rallies where I just saw people coming in from everywhere. And these were not people who were being coerced. You know, there's genuine support there. And of course, there's criticism of the government. And uh, there's criticism of the kleptocracy, the corruption, all that stuff, the, the human rights abuses. But people recognize that the alternative to the Syrian government led by Assad was essentially uh, sectarian death squads like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And so accordingly, people are proud of their government and they're proud that they stood up to this multi-billion dollar dirty war that tried to destroy their country and impose Al-Qaeda or, or at least risk imposing Al-Qaeda or ISIS. So no, I don't think the government will fall. They won the dirty war. And so the only thing now is now the, the people of Syria are being punished because uh, the U.S. and its allies lost. And so accordingly, Syrians have to suffer. They have to go without food and fuel and water, all those things because their government happened to not be toppled by the U.S. and its allies. So accordingly, the people have to suffer, which is the U.S. regime change playbook around the world. If you can't directly overthrow the government, then make the people suffer and hope they suffer enough that they overthrow the government. But I just don't think that's going to happen. What will happen is just uh, Syria will be cut off from the world and it will be hard to rebuild unless the U.S. drops its sanctions because they're they're so sweeping. Well, China, China is helping them, aren't they? I'm not sure of that yet. You know, there's a lot of hope about that. And when I was in Syria, people were very hopeful that China would step in. But China is also pretty cautious. You know, they don't like to come face to face with U.S. sanctions. And so there was talk initially of China investing a lot of money in Syria to help it rebuild. But I haven't seen that yet. We'll see. So we'll see about that. All right. Thank you so much.
Thanks. Okay. Maximilian. Hi, Aaron. Um, I wanted to ask about the, uh, sorry, the Ukraine's possible ascension into the European Union. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen, obviously, with that incredible statement that the Ukrainians are willing to die for the European dream. And uh, recently, Putin was, uh, gave some remarks at some kind of economic forum in Russia where he said that he was actually quite open to Ukraine joining the EU at this point. Uh, however, he said that it would become more like a European colony and that, you know, it would be so reliant on the rest of the EU that it would just be constantly fed subsidies. Yeah. So I wanted to ask, uh, what, like, why is Putin now okay with Ukraine joining the EU? And I'm thinking maybe it has to do something with, you know, the upcoming BRICS summit, which might be really substantial. Um, and yeah. Uh, to my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> but I don't think Putin's ever opposed Ukraine joining the EU. And in fact, I think at one point he proposed a sort of trilateral thing where, you know, the Ukraine, Ukraine, the EU and Russia all share economic ties. Uh, that was a while ago, but that I believe was his stance um, before the Maidan coup in 2014. What he has opposed is Ukraine joining NATO, which is different than the EU because that's a military alliance. It's a hostile military alliance. And it means that uh, if Ukraine and Russia ever got into a conflict, then the whole rest of the NATO alliance would enter into war with Russia. So basically World War Three. So that's been Russia's core concern. So I'm not surprised that Putin is saying that he's open to Ukraine joining NATO. Um, you know, a big issue back in 2014 was that the demands of the EU for Ukraine to join it, to enter in what was called an association agreement with the EU. So not full membership in the EU, but, you know, moving towards it by deepening economic ties. The EU wanted to impose really harsh economic austerity and, you know, cut fuel subsidies and pensions uh, for Ukrainians. And the president, Yanukovych, who really wanted to actually join up with the EU, uh, c contrary to the narrative, he was not some kind of Russian puppet. He wanted to do this. Once he read the fine print, he realized that for him it would be political suicide. And that's when he backed out uh, and tried to, you know, uh, play it both ways, having a deal, have a deal with both the EU and also with Russia. And Russia capitalized by offering him a more generous deal, including energy subsidies. And that's when you had the Maidan protests break off by people who wanted to join the EU and also were against Yanukovych's corruption. But uh, still, the country was very split. If you look at polls at the time in 2014, it was a very divided country. And, uh, you know, when the Maidan protests kind of whittled away, like the, the reformist, pro-democracy, pro-EU contingent kind of left, what was left was a fascist contingent. And that's who carried out the coup of 2014. So this issue of, you know, Europe, uh, of, of Ukraine joining the EU has been going on for a long time. And, you know, especially now, I, I think I think Russia is now going to basically take major parts of Ukraine. The days of Russia supporting the Minsk Accords, which would have called for keeping Ukraine's borders intact, except for Crimea, but keeping the Donetsk and Luhansk regions inside of Ukraine's borders, that's over. I think Russia will incorporate them into Russian territory or just, or just recognize them as independent republics. But the rest of Ukraine, I don't think Putin cares about that. I think his sole concern or his main concern was ending the Donbass war uh, and preventing Ukraine from joining NATO. And on, on that front, I think he will ultimately succeed. 
Okay, thank you. Um, I also wanted to point out that a German journalist risks three years in jail, and even her father's PayPal account was closed because she was targeted by the ISD. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that, and then I'm, I'm done asking. Thanks. You know, someone sent me uh, something about that, but I haven't had the time to read it yet. But that sounds horrible, and I'll look more into it. All right, it. thank you so much. Okay, Jonathan. Hi there. For, uh, long-time listener, first-time caller, long-time man crush on you, Mr. Aaron. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I actually wanted to touch on, I, I hate to do that, sound like this person, touch on the um, January 6th thing, okay. if, I w- if I could. Sure. Yeah, um, to, to go back, because I wanted to call in before, but that Anthony's the guy who called the sentient rose emoji from Twitter, basically. Uh-huh. <laughs> He took up the time. But anyway, I think a lot of people, you get a lot of the points on January 6th, right? It's just a show. It's distraction, yada, yada. But it's also, I think it's the DNC has found a new tool. They want to use the police state and the surveillance state as a cudgel. Correct? As a cudgel against their political opponents. And they're going to use this as the red flag laws that they're proposing now to fight the domestic terror they're going to use that to arrest citizens and journalists soon. Mm. It's very, it's like an Orwellian deluge, and no one, it, no one sees the field for the trees. I feel. Yeah, well, you know, Glenn Greenwald's done a lot of writing on this. It's not an issue I've followed too closely, but uh, you know, it makes perfect sense to me that in the aftermath of these, you know, horrible events like this, like January sixth, the national security state exploits it to increase its power and increase its powers of surveillance, even though it was an national security state that failed us on January 6th. And so... Um, yeah, that's the yeah. biggest irony. Did you hear recently the TSA had a, fa- had a... They had a test failure rate of seeing, you know, their own organization testing what could go through. 80% failure rate of wow. testing things going through the airports. Wow. Well, there we go. Yeah. Yeah, so, that tells um, you the surveillance yeah. state is sort of like a Kafkaesque bureaucratic nightmare that's just justifying its own existence at this point. Yeah. It's like liberalism and bureaucracy just have this love child. Anyway, Absolutely. I take my I take my question off the air. Yeah. And, you know, and and there are reporters who who are right wing, so there's a lot of them I don't a lot of things I don't agree with them on. For example, people who believe that Trump was robbed of the 2020 election that, you know, the stop the steal thing that was real, that there was a conspiracy to deny Trump the election. I don't buy any of that. I think that's all ridiculous, but people who believe that have none have, I think nonetheless done good reporting on the crackdown that the people at the stop the steal rally January 6th have faced. And I've gotten messages from people who claim to be locked up still or recently because of January 6th. And I haven't had time to look into them because I'm, I'm focused on, foreign policy stuff. Yeah, and you know, but, like the Democrats yeah, um, love this now because they can put all these proud boys in jail and make it look like, oh my God, you have to elect us because you have to stop the the white supremacists from taking the country over. Or, yeah. for instance, Gretchen Whitmer. You know, all those people were set up, stooged by the, this, the, the um, FBI. None yeah. of them actually wanted to go kidnap Gretchen mm-hmm. Whitmer in, in Michigan, right. but they were put up to it. Well, the majority, um, like, like what was the figure? Like the majority of people who were involved were actually FBI informants or something? Yeah, no, it was like a, like a, like a two yeah. to three ratio at least. 
we are that's yeah. a red flag event right there right you know I, again i haven't followed this stuff too too closely so i don't want to speak out of school and, and look you know january 6th was horrible and i imagine for the you know capital police officers are pretty scary uh, having to deal with that. And, and, uh, and there were white supremacists there. Like there were all these people with crazy views, but, uh, if that's going to be used to justify a sort of internal crackdown on dissent and beefing up the national security state, I'm not going to support that. Obviously it's something to watch out for. And yeah, in these hearings, I don't see any criticism at all of how the Capitol police, how the FBI failed to prevent this from happening. And, and, you know, it should be, this point should be made that if Black Lives Matter was having the same protest, there would have been a much bigger security presence. So, you know, but all those things are not going to be addressed by January 6th. Yeah. All right. Thanks for the call. All right. Uh, And who's who's saying you're up? What's up, Aaron? How you doing? How's it going? Um, So I grew up the first part of my life in uh, previously occupied South Lebanon. And I'm always thinking about uh, Palestine. And uh, your father has really good work and a really good interview with uh, Russell Brand. I want to recommend uh, everybody watch your father's interview with Russell Brand. And I want to wish him a happy Father's Day. Ah, well, um, thank you. Uh, I will pass that on. Thank you. And uh, the Palestinian resistance has been uh, gaining more support more power over the years i think now they can count on syria part of south lebanon of course iran uh part of iraq um you you touched on the russia and uh, israel uh connection that's very complicated but but israel supported ukraine in this russia ukraine war do you think um things might change where the Palestinian resistance can one day count on Russia a little bit more? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I mean, we're certainly seeing a break, a complete break of Russia from, from the U S led orbit and the U S led orbit does include Israel, obviously, but does that translate to rupturing ties between Israel and Russia? I don't know. I don't know enough about, Israel-Russia dynamics to say what I do know so far is that when it comes to Syria, uh, Russia has been um, incredibly passive. It, like Russia has let Israel carry out those bombings. If Russia really wanted to, it could prevent Israel from bombing Syria, but it hasn't. Yes, so, yes. so for me to so for me to predict that that's going to change based on Ukraine, I you know I I can't make that prediction. But it's certainly it's certainly worth watching out for. It, it's an interesting dynamic that. It's a great question you raise, and it's worth yeah. watching out for. Because, yeah, that will definitely change things for the Palestinians getting some, uh, you know, freedom and getting actually liberated in the in the future if they can, you know, even without a war. Like, if the Palestinians have enough support from the world, there won't be a need for a war, and they will just get some of their rights back and where they can be satisfied. If there could be a change inside the U.S., if the U.S. would stop subsidizing Israel and stop providing diplomatic cover for what it does and stop all the military support, things could change radically. But that will require a lot of momentum here. And, uh, you know, things have changed for the better overall. Like, you know, 20 years ago or you know, 25 years ago, 
Hillary Clinton had to apologize when she voiced tepid support for the idea of a Palestinian state. She had to literally apologize. I know, that's great. So, but the, the U.S., sorry, the U.S. Uh, right now with Ukraine, it, it, it's a complete failure. They've supported them in every single way, a lot of money, a lot of weapons. And yeah. Ukraine, no matter what, is going to fail. So things might change in yeah. the, the support of U.S. for Israel one day. Right. And, and you know, by the way, you know, even before the Russian invasion, <clears throat> Israel was already helping to arm the Azov Battalion. There was a, a petition in Israel brought by some hu- human rights groups that asked the Israeli government to stop arming the Azov Battalion because, you know, uh, it doesn't look good for the Jewish state to be arming neo-Nazis. So this even predates <laughs> the crazy. invasion. And um, but yeah, so listen, you raise a great question. Yeah. It's something it's something definitely worth keeping an eye on. Yeah. Another thing, yesterday, Caitlin Johnston had a really good uh, article and she says that Assange is doing his best work right now. He is exposing how the empire can extradite a journalist for saying the truth. Mm -hmm. And that was a really good, powerful point. I agree. I totally agree. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. You meet. Hi, Aaron. Hi. Um, yeah, first of all, I was very impressed uh, that you were in Syria last year, and I was really surprised. So so it is possible to get into Syria. Um, wow. Uh, second of all, many thanks for all uh, that you do. I have a couple of questions. Uh, first of all, I want to know if I'm correct in thinking this. Uh, the reason why Russia is being... Uh, well, let's say attacked from 2014 and on, is that the result uh, of um, responding to Assad's call for help uh, in the war that uh, Syria had, or is that uh, something completely different? Sorry, Syria question again? Is is what the result? Well, um, around 20, I think it was 2013, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Assad asked um, uh, Russia for help. So Syria wanted uh, needed help to to uh, fight uh, the Islamic State uh, in, in in their country. Um, is that before or after everything uh, happened in um, uh, in the Ukraine? Okay, so the Ukraine proxy war breaks out in February 2014 mm-hmm. uh, yeah. because that's when the government is overthrown, and then a uh, and then a war soon breaks out between you know Russian speakers in the east and the coup government. So that's yeah. February 2014 when it begins. And then Russia enters Syria in 2015. I think it was the, I think it was August 2015 oh, okay. or the fall 2015. And that's because basically Putin is seeing that Russia, you know, unless Russia intervenes, ISIS could take over Syria. And it was actually mm-hmm. John Kerry who admitted that too. Have you heard John Kerry's uh, soundbite on this? Yeah, I think uh, I heard it on uh, on the podcast of, uh, of, um, uh, of Max and, uh, and, uh, and Benjamin, I think. They, they, yeah, they, they, I will. If yeah, I can find the there. clip, yeah. If I can, here I'll play it for you quickly. This is this is John Kerry in 2016, and this is what he said about that. The reason Russia came in is because ISIL was getting started. Ash was threatening the possibility of going to Damascus and so forth, and that's why Russia came in because they didn't want a Dutch government, and they supported Assad, and and. Uh, and we know that this was, this was growing. We were watching. We saw that that Dash was growing in strength. 
and we thought Assad was right. We thought, however, we could probably manage, uh, you know, that Assad might then negotiate. Instead of negotiating, you got Assad. Now you got the groups that support him. So that's John Kerry. He was saying that in a leaked recording. He, I, I don't think he knew he was being recorded uh, in a meeting with Syrian opposition activists in 2016. That's an amazing statement. I, I can't. I, I can't play that clip enough uh, because <laughs> okay. he's admitting. He's admitting some amazing. First of all, he's saying that Russia came in because he says, "quote They didn't want a Daesh government." Okay, mm-hmm. he did, and Daesh means ISIS. Yeah. So th- the war was risking an ISIS government, and then Kerry also admits that not only was that Russia's reason for coming in but that the U.S. was actively willing to risk the possibility of a Daesh government because he says we were watching. We were watching ISIS encroach on Damascus, and we thought we could manage, and we thought that yeah. uh, Assad could negotiate. And what he means by that is we were watching ISIS encroach on Damascus, and even though we knew that that could lead to ISIS taking over Damascus, we thought that we could use ISIS's advance as leverage to get Assad to negotiate his way out of power. So basically – Using ISIS, the U.S. Use, admitting that it's, it used ISIS as leverage to force regime change on Syria. It's an extraordinary admission, but it perfectly encapsul- encapsulates what the U.S. policy was and why Russia went in, because it didn't want yeah. an ISIS government. Yeah, there was also an, uh, a release document by a FOIA, a FOIA request uh, of the MIA saying exactly the same thing, I think. It was uh, around 2016, uh, I guess. Um, okay, that's that's about Syria. There's one other thing that I, w- I would like to know. Um, a lot of people in Asia are talking about the BRI and that the BRI might be a very good deterrent of the, yeah, how you say it, unipolar world and uh, that these things might, um, um, yeah, that the, the, the conflicts in the world might be less uh, when this uh, process of uh, the BRI unfolds. How do you see this? Is this uh, a possible uh, a, a possible um, um, future that we might um, go to, or is it just uh, some wishful thinking? Okay, so you're talking about China's Belt and Road Initiative? Exactly, yeah. yeah. You know, let's talk about that some other time. It's not my area of expertise, and it's kind of a, it's a topic that requires, I think, a, a lot of time that we don't have today. But So thank you sure. for the call. Thank you. Thank okay, you. Jeff. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, yes, uh, today was Father's Day, and um, Julian Assange uh, wasn't able to meet with his children, but he was. Uh, they were permitted to call him in his cell. Yep. Uh, yesterday he was strip searched and uh, you know abused pretty badly. His wife tweeted about it on Twitter. Mm. Um. I am depressed about the Assange situation because um, I know his legal team are willing to appeal all the way to the Supreme Court and all the way to the European Court of Human Rights if they have to. But this does involve the prospect of Assange being incarcerated uh, in Belmarsh for a very long time. Yep. And I just really don't know what to expect from that, to be honest. He's in... um, 23 hours a day isolation, uh, solitary confinement. Um, I mean, it's it, he's just being used as an example, really, um, you know, to um, to frighten others who, who might do the same thing he did. Um, but um, on the uh, Ukraine situation, 
Um, I did hear Yanis Varoufakis say um, recently, unfortunately, on the Owen Jones show. <laughs> I know neither you or I are a huge fan of Owen Jones, but it was a, it was a good conversation in which um, Varoufakis said that um, uh, he thinks that, that the the end game the end game for Ukraine has to be a deal to which both the U.S. and Russia are party, um, in which um, Russian forces leave and uh, at the same time Ukraine is uh, neutralized and the promise is given that it will never enter NATO. And as for the Donbass, he said sort of the optimal option, if you like, would be a power-sharing agreement, uh, sort of uh, modelled on the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland, where you have power-sharing uh, between the two communities there and the prospect long-term of a possible referendum on the Donbass's future. Um, I didn't think that sounded too bad, actually, but um, unfortunately, you know, rational solutions don't seem to have much purchase in the world at the moment. Um, no, they don't. No. I mean, that sounds good to me, too. Um, and if Yanis Varoufakis would be a mediator in that conflict, I would support that. I just don't think I don't think the U.S. is ready to um, engage in that kind of talk. And frankly, I don't know if Russia is willing to engage in any talk involved in the U.S. either. I think they might be, just be done with the U.S. You know, the Minsk Accords. I don't know if any if people saw this, and I, I'm trying to find the exact quote, but I need to verify it first. But I heard that Poroshenko, the former Ukrainian president before Zelensky, mm -hmm. he, just, he recently admitted that Minsk for the Ukrainians was just a mirage. They were using Minsk and, and the illusion of it, the appearance of it, to basically prepare for war with Russia, that they never intended to actually implement Minsk. That's what Poroshenko reportedly said. And I think uh, from Russia's point of view, they see the U.S. as intractable and refusing to ever meet Russia's core security demands. So in that context, what's the point of talking to them? I, I think that they might just carry this on until they feel satisfied with, with their achievements, which just means more bloodshed for everybody. Yeah, I think the um, uh, Ukrainians might have really shot themselves in the foot with that, actually, because yeah. I agree with you that Russia is probably going to get uh you know is is going to prevail in this war and i think uh you know at the time of the minsk accords the donbass uh politicians they were autonomists not separatists at that stage yeah. but after everything that's gone on they're now you know full out separatists you know for understandable reasons and i don't think they'll want to go back to minsk well minsk is over minsk is dead uh you know the, Minsk had its chance for you know seven years um, from 2015 on. Um, I think you can fairly say that Russia tried to respect it. I mean, for example, when the republics in the Donbass tried to declare independence, Russia refused to recognize them and said, you know, Russia basically said, no, we, we, we recognize you as part of Ukraine because that's Minsk. Russia wanted to keep Crimea, which it just, which is not going back. But the Donbass, it was officially recognizing as part of Ukraine, but that but that moment passed when Zelensky refused to implement Minsk and also refused to declare neutrality. And now I think Russia will either annex it or recognize its independence. But it's those regions are not going back to Ukraine. I, I think that's I think that's safe to say. No, I agree. And finally, I'd just like to comment on the uh, attacks on you recently. 
Uh, of course, there was the attack in the Observer by Mark Townsend, which was, I thought, very pernicious because it kind of insinuated that you were, I don't, I, I don't know the exact words, but the biggest spreader of disinformation, I think, I think it said you'd overtaken Vanessa Beely. Um, and I thought that was rather uh, devious because Vanessa Beely is probably one of the few uh, dissidents in the Western world who actually has spread conspiracy theories. Um, that are a little bit crazy, you know, such as, uh, you know, saying the, the attacks on Charlie Hebdo in Paris were an inside job and things like that. So I thought to bracket you alongside her was pretty uh, revolting. Um, and also there was uh, the attack in Private Eye, which uh, sort of considers itself an oppositional sort of satirical magazine, and it just went completely crazy, referring to, you know, the grey zone as this, you know, sort of Moscow-affiliated media and all the rest of it. It was, it was absolutely nuts. So uh, apologies for certain things that have been happening, you know, in Britain in recent days. Oh, well, hey, listen, honestly, um, <coughs> when I'm attacked like this, it's, uh, to be honest with you, it's, it's really an honour. It shows that the work I'm doing is having an impact and it shows that people can't address it on the substance. And so they have to resort to cheap tactics like this name calling and relying on state funded propaganda to try to discredit me. So honestly, to me, it's a badge of honor. And, um, the, uh, the real threats are, are faced by people like Julian Assange. And, oh, yeah. uh, you know, um, He's what he's facing. I just can't imagine. I can't imagine what he's facing. And um, and if they prevail with him, then they'll just move on to anyone else who dares, you know, cross the party line to the extent that he did. I mean, with his courage and fearlessness. I mean, that's that's what is a threat to them, and that's what they're trying to extinguish. So yeah, but so Jeff, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, Violet. Hi, um, how are you? <laughs> uh, just wanted to say thank you for all the work you do. Um, it's very much appreciated. Uh, I think it takes a lot of courage and um, you're a rare breed these days. So uh, we value you. <laughs> we must protect you at all costs. Um, and just wanted to, I'm sure you're, you probably don't. <laughs> appreciate hearing about your dad all the time but uh i believe that like your work is inherently connected because um i mean he's his work has helped me a lot with with trauma issues and to me imperialism capitalism war the state of our society is trauma itself so i appreciate both of your work and the way it, it intersects um and I'm sorry for the recent attacks you've been facing, but like you just said, it's, it is a badge of honor. Um, so when it comes to Julian Assange, it clearly he's, it's a unbelievably tragic situation. Um, I can't imagine what he and his family is going through. Um, he's literally being slowly killed. I mean, he's developing health issues, serious health issues uh, due to his imprisonment. And um, it's it's like a de facto death penalty at, 
it, it just it, it blows my mind that solitary confinement is still considered acceptable. It's not. It's torture. It is literal torture and solitary confinement. Um, but I also um, I wanted to kind of use Julian's plight to also shine a spotlight on the U.S.'s other political prisoners because he's not the only one. You know, um, Leonard Peltier, Mumia Abu-Jamal, they have been languishing in prison for decades. And um, I wonder if if they joined forces, if the, the people that are mounting these campaigns for their freedom, if they were to join forces, could that possibly make their case stronger um, for the release of these political prisoners? Because, you know, this has been the U.S.'s empire's tactic for a very long time to silence revolutionary voices, um, put them on the FBI's most wanted list, accuse them of killing a cop, throw them in jail, never to be seen again. And I, I just, it's, hap- it's happened to so many people. I wonder if, if, if there's some, if there would be some benefit to, to them joining forces. Um, and just a second question is where the F are the anti-war protests? I, where are they? I, 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 it's been, it's been intense to watch because I, d- during Iraq, like I remember I, I was still in high school then, but I was going to, to, to protest and, and they were massive. And now I, I haven't seen any any coverage of protests uh, in the U.S. about Ukraine as they send, you know, billions and billions of dollars to this country in um, lethal aid. Uh, Violet, I I totally hear you. It's a great question. We've, you know, I've been raising the same one. It's hard when you have the entire Democratic Party, the squad, Bernie, voting for all this. And, you know, to me, a lot of this is a result of Russiagate, where the interests and the perspectives of the national security state have, in a really successful propaganda campaign, convinced people that, you know, to be a good liberal, to be a good progressive, to be a good resistor, you have to back what the national security state says. And, and when that means that you, we have to fight Russia to defend a democracy versus autocracy because of you know, the relentless Russia gating we've experienced, um, that appeals to some people. And certainly it's sapped progressive energies, you know, to the point where, again, during the Trump years, one of the biggest protests that liberals held was to save Jeff Sessions' job because that was deemed to be a threat to the, to the Mueller investigation. So progressive politics move very much to the right. And that's what happens when, you know, we're told to embrace the national security state and the CIA and support proxy wars. And it's very difficult in that environment to get people to, uh, to oppose war. And even when it's hurting, you know, ordinary people with higher fuel prices, higher food prices, all these things, it's a difficult time, but I don't believe in history being static. And I think that, you know, all of us who are in the know just have to keep speaking 
out and speaking the truth as we see it. And hopefully things will change. You know, it's just, we're in a difficult, we're in a difficult time. And uh, so thank you for the call. I'm, I'm going to move on because we got to wrap it up pretty soon. So Bobby. Thank you. Okay. Bobby, if you're there, there's a microphone in the bottom right that you press to unmute yourself. And if not, we'll go to Roger. Okay. Hello, Roger. Hi, Aaron. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, just to congratulate you on becoming public enemy number one in the Observer, by the way. Well, thank you. Thank you. And uh, But uh, just to remind everybody, although it's associated with The Guardian editorially, it's uh, uh, distinct. Um, and it's a shame. And, and it's kind of a slight the, the question I had is, is what happened to these famous news organs? Because The Guardian, of course, fa- famously... Uh, with Glenn Greenwald, um, got him the Pulitzer Prize and things like that. Uh, but I saw an article today, by, and I've just forgotten his name, I'm terrible with names, uh, by an Australian journalist who, who wrote a small piece saying, you know, the Guardian has rejected us all um, and they don't want to hear from us anymore. And it, it seems a sort of sad state of affairs. But, yeah, that was John Pilger, I think. Yes, John Pilger, you're correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a sad state of affairs. On Julian Assange, I mean, I'm not hopeful. Uh, I, you know, brace yourselves, but anyone put in Belmarsh, um, that's for what he did is, you know, that's not the place. You, you, even if you accept, let's say, that, that he did, you know, let's accept, let's hypothetically say he was a Russian agent or something, but this is kind of a white collar crime in some sense, right? This would not warrant maximum security. So the very fact he's in there um, without charge, you know, I, I just think the writing's on the wall and uh, we're going to witness, you know, the first sort of martyr we've had in the West for a long time. Yeah, it's bleak. It's bleak. We just got to do our best while we still have the chance. But it's, I, I agree. It's bleak. And we're dealing with some really deceptive and um, conniving and just nefarious people who want to silence Julian Assange at every cost. They don't care about press freedom and the law and all that stuff. They don't care. Uh, they care about enforcing their power. And Julian Assange is been a thorn in their side and so now this is their chance to silence him for good so it's bleak but we have to do we have to do our best to try and you know and and who knows um you know there's an appeal right now and who knows what kind of popular uproar can be triggered by this as people realize more and more what is at stake here and what tactics can be done i mean maybe maybe there'll be hunger strikes for julian i don't know what i know is something more should be done and um I am ready to participate in it, whatever it is. As John Pilger said, though, it's the lack of coverage of the, the, you know, most people, you know, I count, I was afflicted by this in in some sense. You know, you go to work, you come home, you just put on the news. You don't really dig deeper. We have a, you know, you you trust that the news is going to tell you what's going on. And unless you actually look for Julian Assange now, you won't find him covered in, in very few uh, TV news channels or anything like that that most people are consuming. You know. So, yeah, it's, it's 
goes back to the point about the Guardian and and the Observer. That all they seem to do is attack. Anyway, I'll let, thank you for taking that and uh, keep up the good work, Aaron. Thank you. Thanks, Roger. Appreciate that. All right, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in, spending some time with me on this Sunday. I really appreciate it. If you're around tomorrow at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, that's Monday morning, I'll be here with Katie Halper as we do the Useful Idiots post-Monday morning show here on Colin. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. And that's it. Have a great rest of your day. Bye, everybody.